Hello and welcome to Start Your Week. I'm Jacob Jarvis and here with me is our own charming Brexit gloomster, Doomsday Watch presenter, Arthur Snell. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? I'm very well. Good morning. So it emerged over the weekend that there was a cross-party meeting of Remainer and Brexiteer minds last week to discuss what has been going wrong, other than absolutely everything. Michael Gove was there, who I assume is very keen to find out who did all of this. Uh, do you think anything will come of this summit? Well, sadly, I think not very much, partly because it has become a news story and, and already the uh, so-called betrayal narrative is out there. Mm from the Brexiters particularly. Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say is, just for those who are not familiar, I, I know a bit about the, the context in which this was held. Uh, Ditchley Park, which hosted the meeting, it exists for just this purpose. It's a, it's a foundation that owns a sort of gorgeous country house in Oxfordshire where people are supposed to go for quiet meetings about important things that don't benefit from happening under the glare of, of the cameras. <laughs> And so that, you know, that's exactly what it's there for. And in a way, it it's quite bizarre. I mean, it is an important story, but it's quite bizarre that it's an important story because in any normal functional country, you would think that representatives of both sides of the biggest political debate in the country ought to meet now and then to have serious conversations about how they can make things better. And basically, what we're saying is that in the UK, that can't happen. And if it does happen at least one side, and some of both sides, to be fair, because I know some people are criticising the fact that David Lammy, as a, as a Remainer, was also there, you mm. know, that, that those people don't, basically don't have the right to do this. Um, so I think it, it's an illustration of, of kind of political dysfunction in the UK. Is it because all of these sneaky spots where they go to chat at these big, glamorous country retreats? Should they just go do it in a travel lodge somewhere and maybe we uh, we wouldn't care so much? Well, I, I do think there is, because it's weirdly, it sort of plays into kind of, you know, spy movies and, and sort of yeah. conspiracy <laughs> theories. And you're right, if probably if they just had a, if they just booked a meeting room at Portcullis House, you know, <laughs> they'd probably be fine. Yeah. Um, but it's because it's in, in this sort of grand place up in the Cotswolds, no one's quite sure what's going on. And there's probably a guy with a shotgun, you know, and, and all the rest of it. <laughs> in the uh, in the mix of this Brexiteer chatter, Sunak had reportedly asked for plans to be drawn up to better EU relations. According to Bloomberg's Alex Wickham, who is reportedly godfather of one of Boris Johnson's many children. So you'd assume his sources, aka his mates, are pretty solid. What might happen there? Might that be something where we see some actual tangible developments other than just Brexiteer rows? Well, I hope so. I think the challenge that Sunak faces, I mean, the, the fact that Sunak is a Brexiter is is in a way quite odd because he he's a pragmatist. He loves international business. He likes mm. things. He, he's clearly not a very conflictual person if you just look at the way he sort of comports himself. And so I'm very sure that, you know, you could get some civil servants to scroll through the biggest sort of blockages in the Brexit situation and come up with some sensible, pragmatic workarounds. Now, whether mm. they survive first contact with someone like David Frost, or you know the 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 sort of the Lee Anderson tendency, or the the hard Brexit, you know the ERG types, Rees Mogg, and so on, that's the question. So I'm 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 actually certain that 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 Sunak and his team are capable of finding things that could be looked at. But it comes back to the 
it's you know the Maoists that run the Tory party that, that for them Brexit is the only final religion it's more important than the economy it's more important than anything that makes sense and any perceived weakening on it you know is 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 the the final treason as far as they're concerned with that between you and me i think brexit has been going quite badly for a <laughs> for a long while uh, these, why, these are the insights that our patrons come to us for <laughs> absolutely but why why now why now is this movement sort of happening I think because although they all rubbish the IMF forecast, it's pretty scary to realise that you're going to have the worst economy in the, the, the you know the, the the rich world in the OECD, particularly when you are planning to hold a general election at the tail end of that year of having the worst economy. So mm. I'm I think that's exactly why you know he's desperate to be able to have some things that he can show at the, at the in 2024. Where where we we don't look around and see that every other comparable economy is doing much better than ours, and it's very clear what the main reason for that is. As I mentioned Johnson a few moments ago, let's get him out of the way. There's this call for the Partygate inquiry to be reopened. Is there is there any chance that will happen? Well, th- this this comes out partially from the very very good podcast series produced by uh, ITV News, and and obviously podcast listeners. If they're not familiar with that, could, could have a listen. There's a suggestion that, you know, believe it or not, the police may not have done a very thorough job uh, investigating Boris Johnson. <laughs> Remarkable. It's hard, to, it's hard to know whether they would reopen because you've also got the Privileges Committee inquiry, which is on whether or not Johnson lied to the House of Parliament. I would imagine that the police don't want to start a big inquiry when you've also got this public inquiry ongoing, albeit only on one specific aspect, Johnson's conduct in Parliament. So my guess, and that's all it is really, is that that I don't think the police will go near this until the Privileged Committee have done their job, and then maybe they'll return to it. In a never Johnson linked story that's going on, unfortunately, yes, another one. Could, uh, Could Richard Sharp go this week? Yeah, well, of course, the, the common theme in all of this is corruption and Boris Johnson. And so with in the case of Richard Sharp, we've got somebody who was, you know, trying to become BBC chairman at the same time as offering Boris Johnson advice and guidance on his financial situation at the same time as saying that he doesn't do that. And at the same time, of course, of Boris Johnson saying that he doesn't do that. So that that's the, the fairly standard Boris Johnson scenario. Richard Sharp is clearly completely confused why anyone should have a problem with his conduct. And he he bowled into the Commons um, committee last week uh, with this attitude. And MPs weren't very impressed with it because they felt that there were quite a lot of reasons why there should be a problem mm. with his with his uh, conduct. It's hard to know whether he'll he'll you know, he seems pretty dug in. I, I don't think he really feels like resigning. So it's not clear to me whether he'll go this week or not. From a couple of horrid characters who would like to get out of the way to a couple more of those types of people. Uh, Lee Anderson and Suella Braverman. 30p Lee has proved to be quite the bargain bin for for scandal at the moment. Uh, the Lib Dems want to use him against the Tories to win safe seats. Will we actually see his whole shtick turning into something that changes how parties behave in the coming days? Well, I think in a way, you know, Lee Anderson is a is a very unsubtle representation of what all parties try to do, which is kind of match the right person to the right constituency. And if you think about back in the new Labour era, John Prescott, 
a man with working class background with a, a North of England accent. He was seen as more credible with certain communities than Tony Blair, who, you know, was a slick Islington barrister, privately educated and so on. And so in that sense, you know, Lee Anderson has been picked by the Tories to be someone who talks convincingly to, to people in the so-called Red Wall. Now, it seems to me that's an extremely patronising and sort of ill-thought-through strategy on the part of the Tories. But equally, that is also kind of what opposition parties have always done. I mean, you know, clearly in a, the kind of places the Lib Dems are targeting, Cheltenham, Winchester, bits of Surrey, Lee Anderson is not <laughs> looking like an impressive character. He, he, he is a reminder of where the Tories have ended up. And and so it's mm. it's it's a very obvious way to, you know, to say, look, it's not people like Michael Gove who you might dislike, but you see him as sort of, you know, polite and and sensible, albeit you know, Brexity and slippery. It's people like Lee Anderson. This is this is what you're voting for if you vote Tory, and and I can imagine that's quite an effective vote harvesting machine if you're if you're trying to win Dominic Raab's seat, for example. I think the thing about Lee Anderson is up in the north is that people know those sort of sort of characters. I've been in the pub and there's been those kind of characters. And it's the person that you you deliberately stay as far away from as you physically can until he eventually catches your eye and you think, Oh shit, is this bloke gonna is this bloke gonna come over and talk or or worse? So uh yes. yeah, he, is, he's uh, that guy you, you fake a phone call. You say, Oh Lee, I'd love to chat, yeah. and you hold your phone <laughs> up to your ear and walk out of the pub. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's just it's the dodgy bloke from school who you think, Oh, we're the same age. I, I can't <laughs> believe that. <laughs> on to uh on to Braverman, another bunker favourite character here. Uh, she put out a a late and pretty mealy mouthed statement over the scenes in Nosley over the weekend. She's all for cracking down on disruption and a you know, a police van was set on fire, but she seems less uh less keen to crack down in this instance. Could she could she actually change tack on anything here you know she doesn't seem to particularly care about what happened but could she move her position on the housing of asylum seekers to keep them safe from this sort of aggression that we've seen well it it was obviously a, an awful incident and i'm sure everyone's well aware you know a, a big crowd showed up outside a hotel where asylum seekers are currently housed there was a rumor that sort of spread like wildfire about some of the conduct of one of the one of one or two of the um, people at the hotel, but of course, there's absolutely no way of knowing whether there's any truth to that. And then, uh, yes, Suella Braverman's statement kind of gave a bit of um, you know a bit of room to the rioters to to allow them to feel that you know really it it was it was probably okay, as you'd expect from her, because ultimately you know the hard right mob is her constituency. I have no idea why she feels it should be, but that's who she's decided her politics play to. On the fundamental question of the housing, unfortunately, I don't think there is going to be any change. I mean, the scandal of asylum seekers being housed in hotels, and, and these are not the kinds of hotels that any of us was due to go on holiday in. This scandal, as it happens, is something I've been banging on about on these podcasts for, for more than a year. And the, uh, you know, the Home Office has put out a contract to a business that makes millions of pounds and it makes its individual directors millions of pounds to house people in miserable conditions in hotels that no one would go to for fun. These are hotels, that are basically hotels in name only. I can't see anyone changing it because I don't think there is a, there's the political will 
or the public consent, particularly if you consider the the hard right media environment that dominates, particularly the you know the, the Mail, Telegraph, Express, and so on. I I think this is going to be one of those things where you know the the local police in that area are probably pretty pissed off about what happened, but nothing happens at a national scale. On the national scale, in terms of things that Sunak can't seem to get under control, A&E nurses could join strike action in the future, it's been reported. Is this going to be a step too far for him and mean he'll actually try and get a grip on this situation? I hope so. Of course, up to this point, the government have tried very hard on the line, which is a fairly sort of classic right-wing politicians line that, you know, it's the strikers' fault and if there's any disruption to public services. We, we blame the strikers. We, 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 we don't um, accept any responsibility. They could continue that line. They, they could say, well, you know, this is even more dangerous for the public and it's such a shame that the nurses are so selfish. Now, it's, it's not working with the public, but they seem to sort of box themselves into a corner there. Uh, let's not forget that Jeremy Hunt, who, you know, in, in the modern era feels like one of the slightly less toxic members of the cabinet, he uh, faced down a junior doctor strike with a very similar approach, um, using a dishonest public messaging and accusing them of, of um, you know, being unreasonable and, and lacking care, you know, there's the sort of caring um, aspect to their, their profession. So I, I can imagine him trying to dig in. But, you know, the, the difference between when the junior doctors went on strike and now is that the NHS is in such a desperate situation who knows whether or not the system will just collapse. And finally, on domestic stuff, the Tories have been accused of lavish spending with, with taxpayer money, with, uh, with debit cards. Is this anything new? And will this be anything more than a political football to, to kick around? Good question. So this is the, the Labour Party, that their own sort of um, communications and... and uh, division have been working on this story for for months and months and months, and and they are they they're doing their best to turn it into a massive sort of national scandal, perhaps on on a level with sort of MPs' expenses. And I think you know Labour will want this to become a talking point, something that sort of breaks out from the Westminster bubble and and sort of channels the the sense of kind of outrage and that you know the they're not like us with the politicians. If you look at the details of it, you know, it's very quite comprehensive, the work they've done. I'm sure there's more more to come. Like all these sorts of stories, there are things in there and you think, what the hell were they doing? You know, apparently two and a half thousand pounds spent on homebrew equipment classed as IT. <laughs> um, and having done a bit of homebrewing myself, you, get, you can get quite a lot for two and a half thousand pounds. I mean, that, that's not just like a little bucket to make yeah. some cider in. That, that's... Um, <laughs> That's uh, that's ambitious. So it, uh, that, that's a bit intriguing. But some of this stuff, to my mind, is completely legit. You know, uh, Rishi Sunak stayed in a five star hotel in Venice when he was attending the G20. Well, do, do you expect him to stay in the travel lodge, you know, on, on the ring road? Really? I, is that actually how we want to present ourselves to the world? So I, I think there's that there's going to be a mixture of things that look uh, look dodgy and probably are dodgy and things that may look dodgy, but maybe not dodgy. And and if I was going to be a little bit sort of annoying about this, I'd say that the problem with these stories is it just feeds the the kind of hair shirt concept that nobody in public service, whether a politician or a civil servant, should ever have any experience that is in any way pleasurable. And that's a sort of core <laughs> element of their job. 
And then when Labour wins the election and its ministers want to attend a summit in Venice and not have to stay at the travel lodge on the ring road, you know, they're going to be facing the same problem. And, and part of the thing is it seems it's a lack of public consent that we've become so despondent about our politicians that we don't believe that any of them should, should you know, have anything good happen to them. But, you know, that, does that really help our country overall? I don't know. The death toll following the Turkey-Syria earthquake continues to rise with the current number standing at 33,000. The Turkish government has issued 113 arrest warrants to building contractors. What's unfolding there, Arthur? Well, so what's unfolding is that uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey's president, is up for re-election later in the year. And long before any earthquake was, uh, was on anyone's radar... This is an election that he's quite worried about. He'd, he'd been doing a lot to try and rig it in his favour. Now, the earthquake is bad news for him, particularly because under his rule, Turkey has become more corrupt. And it, one of the ways in which corruption in Turkey works is that building contractors put up buildings and then they get local uh, officials to sign off the earthquake um, sort of worthiness, because, of course, in a country like Turkey, that's a ma- major issue. And in fact, only this year, so so literally right now, the Turkish government was proposing an amnesty on buildings that hadn't been built to code, to, to the earthquake code, simply because they knew there were so many of them. And most of them would have, would have been built by sort of corrupt cronies of the ruling party. So obviously, because Erdogan's not a man who likes to take responsibility, he's trying to shift the blame onto those contractors and, and, and trying to, you know, have a sort of scapegoating of them. More widely, what's happening on the ground as far as we can tell? Well, it, it's devastating. You know, there are the, the reason the numbers keep going up is because it, there are it's sort of entire towns have been flattened. I, I spent a bit of time looking at Antakya, partly because it's, it's a city that has sort of um, featured in different bits of my life over time. And this is an ancient, ancient city, of course, with lots of new buildings in it. And as is often the case, the really old buildings quite often survive, but a lot of the new ones have just disappeared under heaps of rubble. And it's, it's you know, we're only really getting to understand the scale of this tragedy. And of course, that doesn't even take into account the complexity of what's going on in the rebel-held district of Syria, as well as the government-held areas of Syria. The one thing that is happening there is that certain sanctions and blocks on stuff reaching the Syrian government are being lifted. Now, from a humanitarian perspective, that's very good news. But it does rather suggest that that the Syrian civil war might be coming to an end for, for reasons in the end that are sort of outside the control of the combatants. Turning to Ukraine, Poland isn't sending any jets yet. What's happening there? And might they be be pushed into doing so this week? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if that will happen. I mean, Poland sort of slightly got ahead of themselves, hinted that they would supply some of their jets, the F-16s in particular, to Ukraine. And then that was sort of rowed back by the Polish Prime Minister. So I wonder whether after the campaigning visit of President Zelensky to Europe, where he that was basically his big message, we need jets, we need jets, whether the Poles slightly got ahead of themselves and, and made an offer that they would find hard to follow up on. I think there's also a question about which jet to send. It's a bit like the, the debate about the Leopard tank versus the mm. Abrams and other ones. There are 
arguably the, the one that is most suited to Ukraine's situation in terms of its maintenance requirements and other things is the Saab Gripen, which is made by Sweden. But of course, Sweden, as a relatively small country, is not going to have a whole pile of these that they can donate. So this mm. is a classic case of Europe needs to get its act together, make some decisions strategically. But unfortunately, thus far, that has not been happening on this file. And it tends to end up being the Americans corralling everyone into, you know, taking the right action. And again, beyond these sort of debates, what's the state of the conflict at the moment? Well, we've been talking about Bakhmut for months now. Bakhmut, which is Mm. a small and arguably strategically rather insignificant town in the Donbass, which the Russians have just invested crazy amounts of men and material to try to take. The latest there is that now the Russian army, not the Wagner mercenary force, which was active there before, the Russian army itself is trying to use its most elite units to seize Bakhmut in in the kind of urban street-to-street fighting. Now, I wonder if that reflects the fact that the command in the Russian military operation in Ukraine switched over to Valery Gerasimov, who is, of course, also the chief of the Russian army. I mean, it's a bit complicated because it's very unusual that you would be both chief Mm. of the army and having an operational command. But maybe that is why that appointment was made. He was more able to leverage some of these specialised units. But those units, if they take back moves, certainly are not able at the scale that they operate to take uh, large swaths of territory. So this just ends up being this bizarre obsession of the Russians on taking one fairly small town in the east of Ukraine to no real effect overall. Now, finally, on this week's Start Your Week, aliens. Another unidentified object has been shot down over the US. What's going on there, Arthur? And is it an aggressive ET attack? Well, and you know, we've we all that develop? we've all seen the movies <laughs> and, you know, the alien invasion, it, when it comes, it comes, right? You, you don't know when it's coming. And it, it may just be that now is the time. Uh, obviously, the, there was this rather bizarre story of the Chinese spy balloon and the Republicans in in in, in um, America really losing their rag about the fact that mm. it hadn't been shot down over a major city. And this spy balloon had huge bits of equipment the size of double-decker buses sort of hanging underneath it. It was shot down over the ocean and has been recovered. And the, the American you know intelligence people are saying that it was full of spy equipment. And now there's been reports of more things having been shot down, one in a very remote corner of Canada, uh, another one, I think, uh, Lake Huron. But no one has yet sort of identified what these objects are. So are they more balloons? Mm. Are they other weird objects or alien invasion? I think at this stage, we may know a week from now when those ginormous sort of um, <laughs> dinner plate things start hovering over the White House, that then we'll know it's alien invasion. But uh, for the moment, I think we, we can say that we're not sure yet. When we're hunkered down in the Podmaster studio, it's the only remaining broadcast media outlet in the world because we've survived that. So, uh, yeah, that's another reason to subscribe to Patreon because at the end of the world, you'll still get this podcast. Uh, Arthur, thank you for joining me this morning. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Jacob. Listeners, remember, if you enjoyed Start Your Week, you can back us on Patreon. Uh, For £3 a month, you'll get episodes early and ad-free as well as a shout-out on this very show. Here's Arthur with today's. My thanks to Steve Flay Danielovich. Phil Smith, Nick Brook, and RM. Thanks for listening and join us for another bunker tomorrow.
Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Arthur Snell. Audio production was by me, Jay Bailey, and our group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.